Well, good morning. How is everyone? Good. Um, well, I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young, and I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church. And we want to welcome you uh, to our new series entitled Counterculture. Uh, it's no secret that uh, we live in divisive times, that difficult, uh, challenging conversations are being interjected um, into our workplaces, into our homes, into our schools, and into our churches. Uh, there's a lot of hot-button topics uh, that create a lot of division and, and maybe our lives or in the lives of those around us as we turn and we look around. But I wonder if maybe the hot-button topics are not really what's ultimately at stake, is, is what's not ultimately at root of the division and the challenges that we face. What if all these cultural debates uh, are connected to our understanding of who God is and what He's doing and how He relates to everything around us? What if, ultimately, the real issue is God Himself? Uh, we're starting a new series today called Counterculture, uh, in which we're examining the Gospel. We're taking a look, every week of this series, we're taking a look at the Gospel and each week, we're going to magnify one detail or one aspect of that gospel. Now, each week, we'll focus on something a little bit different. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at what, what really is the gospel, how does it speak and impact our lives today, and how does it help us know how to interact with our world and today's culture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start this morning by just giving a basic outline of the gospel. Now, a lot of times when we hear that word gospel, uh, which in its original language that we get the word gospel from in ancient Greek, literally just means good news. And I think oftentimes, especially coming just out of the Christmas season, when we hear the word gospel, we often think of uh, the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is absolutely, in a nutshell, the core of the gospel, but the gospel actually begins not before Jesus, but before his birth here on earth. And so we're going to back up even farther as we just start to talk about what is the gospel this morning. And we're going to start in the easiest place to start where the Bible starts in Genesis 1-1, which teaches us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you want to talk about a counterculture statement, this is one that we could talk about, but we're not today. We're going to save that for a different week in this series. But the, the gospel begins, it starts, it has its origins in the idea that God is the creator, the sustainer, and the owner of everything in this life, including our lives themselves. We're going to fast forward as we move on and we're going to look a little bit later in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1 starting in verse 26 as our understanding of the gospel grows Genesis chapter 1 starting in verse 26 teaches us then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth 
And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And another core tenet of understanding the gospel, the good news and the truth that we as those who would identify themselves as followers of Jesus hold dear is the idea that you and I and every other person who has ever lived are created in the image of God. Not only you, but the person you're sitting next to. Maybe the person you wish you were sitting next to. The person across the street, the person down the hall. The person you enjoy talking to and the person you avoid talking to. All are created in the image of God and even those who you've never or will never meet. Now there are some implications to this idea. As we start to understand the gospel story, and part of that is that you and I were created in the image of God, and part of those implications, as we read here from Genesis 1, is that gender and male and femaleness are a part of God's design. It's a part of God's plan for us. As we continue to read more about the uniqueness of male and female, we realize that there are differences, but that both are a part of God's creative design and order. And that the differences that separate men and women have nothing to do with the amount of the image of God that they bear. All people, regardless of gender, bear the image of God. And if all people bear the image of God, it means that all people are equally worthy of respect and honor and care. Leading up to this series, we spent a lot of time talking about gifts. In December, we talked about the gift of God's Son that we celebrate at Christmas The first two weeks of January, we talked about some of the gifts that God gives us, the gift of spiritual gifts and of spiritual leadership. And throughout that discussion, we talked about how all these things that God gives us, He gives them to us so that we can care for one another, uh, we we can serve one another, we can strengthen one another, we can build one another up, because everyone, each of the one another's in our lives, are worthy of honor and respect. We move on as we continue thinking about the gospel story. And a part of the gospel story turns a bit dark. In Genesis 3, we we see when things go wrong. As we were designed for intimacy and fellowship and relationship with God, we see things take a turn. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5 starts with uh, the temptation. And verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, the one tree that God forbid Adam and Eve of eating of, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Now, now here's, here's an interesting point to just stop and think about. Is that the immediate reaction when sin enters into the picture is an awareness by Adam and Eve of their own nakedness and vulnerability. Now, why was that the first thing they recognized? Now, why was that their first reaction is to recognize this? Well, you start to think about the temptation. The temptation was for knowledge, for wisdom, for understanding. The temptation was to know and to be like God. And being like God here was knowing good and evil. What the real temptation was, it was a temptation for independence. It was a temptation for independence of not having a need for God because if we could just be like God ourselves, if we could know what He knows, if we could see what He sees, and one of the unintended consequences to what they wanted and what they received was their recognition of their own vulnerability. Their independence from God came at a cost. Their independence from God came at the cost of a covering from God. When that relationship was fractured and they got what they thought they wanted, they realized they had just lost what they needed all along. Their realization of a nakedness was a representation of what they felt instantly and knowing what genuine independence from God was like. And this is how we start our painting our picture of the gospel. That God creates and that is a part of His creation, the pinnacle of all that He creates. He creates man and woman in His image to live in fellowship, to live in intimate relationship with Him. To create humans that were bearing His image and equal of honor and respect and dignity. But then sin showed up. A desire for independence from God. And with that independence, everything was fractured. We're not going to read the rest of Genesis chapter 3, but the Bible paints a picture for us of what takes place in that moment when sin fractures everything. It begins by fracturing our relationship with God. We still bear the image of God, but now it's marred. What was initially designed to be eternal fellowship and communion is fractured. And a separation takes place. And in addition, there's a separation between people. A separation between God and a separation between people. Now, I don't know how much familiarity you have uh, with the Bible, how much time you've personally spent in church, but I'm going to guess for many of you here today that this story is not new. It's probably not the first time that you've heard this story as we start to get the foundation set for us in understanding the gospel. 
But for many of us, this is where the story stops in Genesis. For most of us, we read about God creating things, about him being the owner and the sustainer of all. We read about God's design for us, for eternal fellowship and intimate relationship. We read about God creating us in his image, and then we read about sin and how sin entered into the picture. But rarely do we carry the conversation into Genesis chapter 4. For a moment, we're going to look into Genesis chapter 4 together. Many of you may have already opened up your Bibles. Uh, If you brought one, if you didn't, we have some in the seats around you. Or you can, as most of us will probably do, open up our phones and open up the Bible app. And you can follow along with us there. Now here's what's interesting about Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we get the first picture of what happens when sin fractures relationships. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the first sin. We read about how and why the fracturing took place. But that chapter kind of ends with God sort of declaring uh, that things have gone wrong and that there are going to be consequences, but that's kind of where the story ends. We don't actually see what happens next. But Genesis chapter 4 sort of opens the door for us just a little bit to see what happens when sin fractures things in our lives. What happens when relationship is fractured by sin? And when we enter into Genesis chapter 4, we open up to the story of uh, two individuals named Cain and Abel. As the story is told, they're the oldest two children of Adam and Eve. And so we're going to pick up the story of Cain and Abel, these two brothers, in Genesis chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain, the older brother, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer. Verse 4, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. He was uh, a shepherd, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, we are not told why. There's a lot of reasons why we could speculate about what it was different about Cain's offering versus Abel's offering. There might be a hint in the text. Because we're told that Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground, and for Abel, it's, he brings from the firstborn of his flock. And so there might be some indication that maybe Cain brought the leftovers and Abel brought the first portions. I mean, we know that Abel brought the first portions. And actually, as the Bible teaches us about giving and about things called like, like tithes and offerings, that part of God's call for his people is to give of the first fruits, to give of the, the first portions. Now, that might be a bit speculation. We don't actually know that Cain didn't bring the first. Um, But we're not exactly told. But verse 5, But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, 
Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Like I said, we don't know why God had regard for, for Abel's offering as opposed to Cain. And we can make some speculations based on what we might see in the text. Cain's angry. There's a bit of jealousy. And then we see God show up and say, Cain, sin is waiting for you. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And the picture we see is that Cain didn't rule over it. That Cain allowed sin to overtake him. And in response, he overtook his brother. Now here's what's interesting. This is the first story that we're given as we begin to understand our, the world around us and why things are the way they are, which is ultimately what the book of Genesis is designed to answer. And the first story we're given about what happens when relationships are fractured is the story of Cain and Abel. And for Cain and Abel, the first instance as sin works its way into a fractured relationship is it leads Cain to look at something that's different or look at something that's a, th a perceived threat to what we want. And Cain chooses to get rid of it. Cain sees something different than him. Cain sees something that he perceives to be a threat to what he wants. And as a result of sin, he results to violence and to force so that he can get rid of and eliminate and destroy what's different, what seems to be a threat. And ever since, we as humans, created in the image of God, but who deal with a sin problem that fractures relationships, have been doing the exact same thing. Looking at things that are different, looking at things that seem to be an inconvenience, looking at things that seem to be a threat to what we want, and we do whatever we have to do to eliminate it, to get rid of it, to hide it, to destroy it. And how fitting is that message of the gospel that teaches us about our own brokenness? How fitting is that for this weekend? A weekend devoted to celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm sure many of us are familiar with his story and even probably some of the specifics. I want to read something to you from Dr. King uh, during part of his life. On Good Friday of 1963, um, Dr. King left his home in Atlanta, Georgia. He went to Birmingham, Alabama to stage some protests in light of some events that had taken place there. And as was common, Dr. King and many of those who were with him were arrested. 
as a result of what took place, there was a group of white pastors in Birmingham, Alabama, that got together and wrote a collective letter to the paper, to the local paper, um, sort of calling out what Dr. King was doing and labeling it as unwise and untimely. They felt that it was inappropriate that, that he would use his platform to create division in their minds and that he would do it on Easter weekend. And so from his jail cell in Birmingham, Dr. King writes a letter in response to these pastors and their letter. I want to read just a little bit of it for you. Part of it, he says, Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Later on in his letter, he says, Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, Wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you have seen the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority begin, beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes, and I'm going to say it because it's part of his letter, nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however you are, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected titles misses. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments when you are forever fighting a de degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. We see from the picture of Genesis chapter 4 that when something looks different, or when something seems to be a threat to what we want or what we're striving after. That sin's natural inclination is to lead us, to push away, to eliminate, to get rid of, to segregate, to destroy, whatever it is that stands in our way. The reality is that that sin seed lives in all of us. It hadn't been eliminated by the 20th century and we certainly know that today it hasn't been eliminated 
eliminated in the 21st. Because a part of the truth of the gospel is that we are all created in God's image. That the differences between us are part of God's creative design. And they have no bearing on how much of his image we all bear. And the gospel compels us to denounce and decry any and all forms of oppression, exploitation, bigotry, or harassment of our fellow humans creating God's image. In the first century, they were dealing with racial issues as well. Even the first century church dealt with it. In the first century church, there was division between the people who would ethnically be titled Jews and those who were not, who would be called Gentiles. And there was a lot of discussion about how do Jews and Gentiles, how do people from very different cultural backgrounds, from different races and ethnicities, and from different religious backgrounds, how can they come together? And the answer for the first century church, as Paul gave it in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were at, one t- at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. It's in Jesus that we find the ability to break down walls that would divide us. It's because Jesus valued human life so much that he gave up his own for it. So that you and I could reach the fullest potential of God's image that he birthed in each of us as he formed us together in our mother's wombs. Now, When I first started pastoring, I didn't talk a lot about racial issues or racial reconciliation. And for a lot of reason, it was because I just didn't think it was that big of an issue. Things in our culture surrounding race were fairly quiet, at least from my limited understanding. And then about five or six years ago, events that were making national headlines on almost a weekly basis started occurring. And I felt convicted that it was something that we must speak about because it has clear implications of the gospel. Now, I'm going to guess because most of you in here, many of you, I know you. Most of you probably don't sit in here this morning, and I hope you don't, feeling convicted, and I hope that you recognize, even before today, the unique image of God that all human beings bear, and that all are equally deserving of our honor and respect, that Jesus spilled his blood for all of us, no matter what kind of blood we have running through our veins that were given to us by our parents. There's only one bloodline that matters. But I don't think the issue is really settled. And I'm not really even talking black and white. 
the issue that's going to confront our church, and I don't mean only ours specifically, I mean the church in the United States, in the coming years and decades and generations, will be the issue of immigration. Now here's what I'm not doing. This is not a political talk. It is not easy to balance the issues of those who are in need and giving a helping hand while also upholding laws that are designed for very particular reasons. This is not a discussion on laws that should be enforced or should be changed. But it's a recognition that the gospel demands our honor and respect and care for all human beings. And it's something God demanded even in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12, God meets a man named Abraham and says, I'm going to create a new people, a new nation through you. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless all nations of the earth. God's blessing was never meant to be hoarded. Those who receive the blessings of God's promise are mandated to share those blessings with others. Deuteronomy chapter 18, God commanded his people to love, feed, and care for the foreigner or the immigrant. Exodus chapter 22, God reminds his own people to treat the foreigner or the immigrant with care and to treat them well. Because as God says in Exodus chapter 22, you were once the foreigner in Egypt. Ezekiel 22, Jeremiah 7, Zechariah 7. Punishment and judgment were pronounced on those of God's own people who mistreated and extorted from the sojourner or the foreigner or the immigrant and did not provide them with justice. I want to read one more portion from this letter from the Birmingham jail. Dr. King says this, In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes, makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. Further on, he says, In deep disappointment I have wept over the laxity of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son and the grandson, the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect, through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful, and the time when the early Christians rejoiced at the being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. 
But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They, too, they were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such evils as infanticide and gladiat- gladiatorial contests. They are different now. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, the forfeit, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as, irrelevant, as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. It was easy for some on the sideline to say that, that these were social issues, of which had no concern of the gospel and therefore should have no concern of the church. But a part of the core of the gospel is that we were made in God's image for something so much more. Sin has fractured that. And instituted by Jesus, we are working to reverse the curse in our lives, in the lives of our family, in the lives of our community and our culture. And it's not enough to sit idly by. I want to read one last statement. We read part of it earlier. Dr. King's letter, he says, The Negro cannot win if he is willing to sacrifice the futures of his children for immediate personal comfort and safety. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere cannot win if he is willing to sacrifice the futures of his children for immediate personal comfort and safety. Because that's what we do. We look at something that's different. We look at something that's a threat to what we want. And we systematically seek to eliminate, to remove, to destroy it. The gospel truth of us bearing God's image has every much relevance to the way in which we interact with other people of other races and ethnicities in our culture. But it directly impacts how we value human life. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, says this, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. But it wasn't just that we were formed in in our mother's womb by God. Jeremiah 1 says this, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
it's not just other races. That sin leads us into wanting to eliminate or segregate or destroy. It's human life itself. It's it's the human life More than 100 million babies are aborted around the world every year. Because sin tells us that if there's something that's different or inconvenient, or it's a threat to what we want, we should get rid of it. But the gospel demands that we value all human life counter to what any other message our culture may tell us, Every human being is equally worthy of honor and respect. It's not just what color their skin is, but even their stage of development does not deter from the amount of God's image that all human beings bear. Now the reality is this morning we're not going to have a science argument. Science has already won the day. Science is proven without a shadow of a doubt exactly when life begins at conception. Do you remember the argument against abortion 20 years ago? It was all about science. It was all about when science would eventually prove that we could determine when life began. You don't hear anyone making a science argument these days because science is already said everything that needs to be said. We're not having a philosophical argument today because there is no definition of life that you can give that would justify abortion that can't then be turned around and taken to its most disastrous extremes to be used on other people and people groups. We're not having a theoretical argument today. Yes, All men and women should have extreme freedom and the choices they make that most directly impact them. But even the most liberal in society know that there has to be a governor on that, that there has to be some kind of limit. You can't run down the street naked. You can't take illicit drugs. You can't do, you can't run into a government building with a firearm. We all recognize that there are certain limits of things that you cannot do, even under the banner of freedom. You can't do anything that would bring endangerment or harm or hurt to someone else. And while we live in a society that heralds autonomy and freedom, there is no theoretical argument that will win, that can solve or provide answers. And we're not even going to have a biblical argument today. Because in nearly 100 different verses that we could go through, reinforce the idea that from the moment you began being formed, God not only was at work informing you, He knew you. He wasn't just at work on the outer parts. He had already done the work on the inner parts. 
Now, we could have those arguments, and we've had them before. You can go back in past years when we've talked about things like this. This weekend not only is a weekend celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it's also uh, National Right to Life Weekend. They often fall on the same weekend, and we've, we've talked about this issue on a number of occasions. And if you want to hear more about the philosophical or theoretical or biblical or scientific arguments, you can go back and listen to those messages. The reality is... What choice will we make? It's the same choice that Adam and Eve had. Will we choose to submit to God and what He has designed for us? Or will we seek our own independence from Him? Now the reality is no one in here is innocent. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You may have never said a racially insensitive thing in your life. And you may have been against abortion from the day that you realized what it was. But none of us are innocent from the seed of sin in our hearts that leads us towards segregation and hatred. Maybe we don't act out in such violence that Dr. King experienced or what Cain did to his brother. But if you ever harbor hate, Jesus said, that's a picture of the sin that lives in you. It's a picture of the fractured relationship, in relationships in your lives and the fractured relationship before God. And the beauty of the gospel is that it does not just teach about God's initial design for us and what went wrong. The beauty of the gospel is that God provided the answer for us as well. Because our lives were so valuable, Jesus gave up his own for us. And it is through the blood of Christ that unity becomes possible. Unity amongst people who are very different from themselves. Unity amongst people who come from different cultures and backgrounds, who look different and sound different who carry different kinds of blood in their veins. It's through the blood of Jesus that we're united and the beauty of the gospel is that we can once again be united to our Creator. That the image of God that was scarred in us can be made whole again. That we can step into that eternal fellowship and intimate relationship with God that we were always designed to have. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the time that we have this morning to talk about some really difficult, challenging issues. Issues that we face every day in life, in culture, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools. 
and even in our churches. And we thank you that you have not only outlined the problem, you have provided the solution. And I celebrate you for loving us enough to die for us. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for just a moment as we move into a time of response and reflection. And as we mentioned, there's no one in this room that finds himself innocent. And maybe you're not just guilty in general, maybe you're guilty very specifically in some of the areas that we talked about today. And the beauty of the gospel is that there is no sin too great that the blood of Jesus cannot overcome. Your past does not have to determine your future, both today and eternally. What Jesus has done for you and I redefines who we are. The Bible teaches us that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God will take your sin away from you and in place give you His own righteousness. Dr. King received his name from his father, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was not born with that name. He changed his name after hearing the story of a guy named Martin Luther, a 15th century reformer. It was Martin Luther who described this exchange. He, he called it the great exchange. When we give Christ our sinfulness and he gives us his righteousness. God makes that available for you today to call out on Him. And may this be a challenge for us this morning. That we realize that the gospel has implications and speaks to every aspect of what we deal with in life and in culture. May we be willing to respond in total humility and serving him. Lord Jesus, as we respond to who you are, would you be honored by all that we say, all that we think, and all that we sing, all that we pray in these moments as we respond to who you are and the beauty of your gospel.